Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books, and this week I'm happy to say we have John Gillis on the show. He's been on the show before, but we're very happy to have him back to talk about his book, The Human Shore, Seacoast in History. I think I'm the perfect person to interview John because I'm from the Midwest. And I grew up in the Midwest. I, I spent most of my time in the Midwest. And I did eventually make it to a couple of shores, namely ones in, in California, obviously, and then in Massachusetts. But I have spent a lot of time uh, in the interior, as he calls it. Uh, but I am strangely drawn to, to shores. In fact, I, I remember very vividly the first time I saw the ocean in California when I was about 15. And that was made quite an impression on me. Um, and I have to say, I do love the beach. So having said that, John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate this. Absolutely. My pleasure. So, John, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm, uh, uh, Marshall, I'm not unlike you. Uh, Actually, my parents came from the Midwest. I grew up, uh, my formative years were really in Buffalo, New York, uh, which is about as interior as you can get. Yeah, that counts. That definitely counts. (laughs) But um, uh, I like um, uh, Rachel Carson, who is my... Uh, uh, my mentor in all these things, uh, was uh, uh, discovered the shore late. Uh, she didn't uh, discover the shore until she was in her, I think, in her 20s. And by the way, she never learned to swim. Uh, so her accomplishment <laughs> as a marine biologist uh, is really quite stupendous. But what I discovered in uh, reading her work where she talks about how we will, we came from the sea and we will all return at one point or another to the sea, that is, as a human species, if we survive that long, um, uh, alerted me to the fact that my own uh, uh, history, my own small uh, 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 contribution to the history of, uh, of our species was uh, a track that came um, uh, from the interior back to the sea, and the discoveries that I have made there over time, working uh, first on on islands, Islands of the Mind was my first book of this kind, and then in my transition to an environmental historian, um, discovering the shore um, as the uh, first home of of mankind alerted me to um, uh, feeling that uh, that uh, that I was um, participating in something. Uh, larger than myself, and I think I think that's what um, uh, carries um, uh, history forward. Is when historians uh, and indeed uh, readers of history discover that they are participating as well as thinking and writing about um, a, their their particular subject. So that that's um, that's my trajectory. Mm-hmm. And can you tell us? I mean, you've kind of already answered the question, or at least indicated an answer. Uh, why did this is an unusual book? 
I will say that. It's an unusual book. I've okay. not really ever read it. That's good. That's a good thing. Um, <laughs> that, that why did you write uh, The Human Shore Seacoast in History? Well, my, my uh, personal experience of the shore is now a bi-coastal one. We live in Berkeley during the, uh, the winter months, and then for more than 40 summers, we have spent uh, most of the summer on a small island um, off the coast of Maine. It's called Great Got Island. It's not very great. In fact, it, it has a little neighbor we call Little Got. But um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I have been <clears throat> deeply um, um, moved, infected, not by a simple-minded islamania, which I, I uh, am critical of, but I have been moved uh, to think about uh, the shore to which that island belongs, that is the coast of Maine, as a, some, a place very special. And I, I hope I've conveyed... Uh, some of, of that, as well as the general outlines of shores around the world um, in this book, The mm-hmm. Human Shore. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I emphasize that um, the, the, the title Human Shore uh, uh, makes it, I hope, makes it clear that the shore is not some kind of natural feature that, um, you know, that we in, inhabit for longer or shorter periods during the year, but it is the it is a product of our um, human history as much as it is the product of of the natural histories of all the plants and creatures that we share that shore with. So we we must begin to treat the shore, uh, in my view, as our as our human home, um, if we are to get anywhere in this. Uh, terrible crisis that we're now involved in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So uh, this is a contribution to, would you call it environmental history or world history? Yes, I, I definitely would. Okay. I, yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, which is a new field for me. Uh, but um, like uh, Edward Thompson used to say, uh, as he, he talked about his work, he was seized by the subject of, uh, of working class history. I've been seized by the by the subject of environmental history. It's very, very compelling. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it is so new and it is so open uh, that you can can do um, uh, so many different things with Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So as I said in the pre-interview, the book is arranged chronologically, which I think most history books should be, but (laughs) that's just my prejudice. Um, And and you begin with uh, what we call, wrongly I think, the prehistoric period. Uh, that is the period of uh, the, yeah. the period of evolution, and then the period after which, about 180,000 years ago, when Homo sapiens first appeared in Africa. And one of the arguments you make is, is that they head to the shore pretty quick, although they do evolve in the interior of Africa, right? Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, and, and of course, there are many um, variations on the um, uh, on the human theme. Uh, we're still not quite clear on what we mean by. Uh, by humanity. But let's take Homo sapiens. Um, it's pretty clear now from new research that um, Homo sapiens began to differentiate from other um, <clears throat> forms of humanity, um, if you can call it that, uh, about uh, 200,000 years ago when they came down to the shore from the interior of Africa in what was actually a great um, environmental crisis of the time. The center of Africa dried out. They had no place to go. They came down to a shore that they were unfamiliar with. 
Uh, they discovered there the, the riches of the tidal zone, uh, the shellfish, the, um, uh, the seaweed, uh, the, uh, the various kinds of minerals and, um, uh, and uh, uh, lipids that um, uh, then allowed them and this is not entirely clear yet, but to expand uh, their uh, neurological abilities. And from that point, there's no doubt about this, from that point onward, they, um, they had uh, continued to come and go from the shore. But uh, about 50,000 years later, the, the, they began to depart uh, from the African shore and move uh, shore-wise or coast-wise Around the globe um, to to Australia, uh, then ultimately um, uh, to uh, to the Americas, and uh, that uh, they they completed the loop, shall we say, not coming out of interiors, but often uh, along shores where the rich the riches of uh, uh, of the environment allowed them to. Uh, develop, progress, and uh, to invent and to to thrive culturally as well as materially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I uh, I think that that's been well established that in fact they did move along uh, the Eurasian littoral, I guess we could call it, uh, and then populate uh, 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 um, uh, Australia, and then they they made it up um, uh, over the land bridge. I guess twenty thousand years ago, they came over to what we call the Near East about sixty thousand years ago. If I if I Recall, I don't, I don't no, well, they, yeah, they were there uh, earlier than that. But the uh, the people that we, I think, uh, genuinely regard as our ancestors um, uh, came various ways out of Africa. But what the striking thing is how quickly they moved once they got into this uh, littoral or coastal position. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would argue, uh, and this, I'd be happy to have challengers on this, that we've really gotten uh, history basically wrong when we, we think of it as a, as a landlocked uh, operation with occasional uh, forays out into the, uh, into the Blue Sea. Uh, the fact is that, uh, that most of human uh, history has occurred at or near coasts, and that the interiors have uh, have been far less productive and creative than uh, than have been the littoral. So, um, you know, looking at it from this perspective, um, I challenge, for example, the mythology of the Bible, uh, which locates Eden uh, in an interior space, and suggests that um, uh, maybe we got that one wrong too. But once it gets embedded in religion, of course, it becomes a religion, and the, so these are very hard um, habits of thought to uh, to dislodge. And mm-hmm. I'm just trying to dislodge uh, this kind of interior thinking and direct people to the coast mm-hmm. um, as a place of history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting because I was just teaching uh, for whatever reason the Epic of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh, I don't think, does go near the sea. But then the next no. thing we read was. Uh, the Iliad, which is pretty much yeah. all about being by the sea. <laughs> I know, isn't that yeah. interesting? No. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah no. it no. is interesting. So uh, one of the things you have to say, which is kind of controversial in terms of chronology, is that uh, most historians, and I think all historical anthropologists, would make an enormous break about 10,000 years ago when yeah. there was a transition between what we might call casual horticulture to uh, organized agriculture. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I can. Um, 
Uh, again, of course, that was an enormous break, and out of it came urban civilization and um, taxation and and states, uh, a great power and military force. But um, <clears throat> long before that, people uh, at the shore were uh, living a very civilized life, um, uh, probably at a higher level of nutrition uh, and human health than, than anybody um, uh, grubbing ground. Um, and yet, um, you know, this is one of our things we... we we have our favorite ancestor myths, and uh, and the um, uh, whether it be the American pioneer or the uh, or the Aboriginal um, uh, 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 agriculturalist, uh, these uh, these are our ancestors in our view. But I'm trying to change that view. Mm-hmm. So uh, why would we? You know, I know you're trying to change that view, but why would we change our view of that? I mean, it seems to me that you know much of what we know about um, a prehistoric settlement, for example, of Europe indicates moving from, and I could be totally wrong here, uh, indicates moving from the coast uh, to the interior. Well, yes and no. You're, you're, I mean, again, you know, we, we're all taught Western Civ. Where did we go? start out with Rome, move into the feudal period, and, you know, the image of, of that is a completely landlocked existence, and then comes along the, the Renaissance and exploration. People move out, but the fact is that um, throughout this whole period, the the shore was a place of, of lively uh, uh, interaction between land and sea. Um, uh, most most fishermen were farmers, and farmers were also fishermen. Um, uh, and it's uh, it's that story which I try to tell you. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to do is simply loosen up categories sufficiently for people to look at themselves and look at our current situation um, at, in a different way and appreciate uh, the shore for, for, for what it is and not abuse it uh, any longer in the way we have to, uh, to treat it as an autonomous um, and important part of our our legacy, and to try to understand how to live with the sea at the shore rather than on the sea, mm-hmm. on shore. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, here's a very simple question, and I don't know the answer to it. Uh, uh, when were the first boats invented? They definitely must have been invented, uh, you know, 40,000 or so years ago when humans okay. went to Australia. There's no other way to get there, right? I mean, am I wrong? I well, that's, that's, a, that's a controversy, and they could have rafted over... It depends. Oh, I, being a Midwesterner, boats. being the Midwesterner, yeah. I don't make a distinction between rafts and boats. <laughs> yeah, rafts and boats. Uh, is with a skill. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, you know, I think even now the the first boat is an indefinite, maybe fifty thousand years, maybe before that. But um, uh, as far as uh, a maritime society is concerned. Um, uh, uh, I think we have to be careful uh, if we don't want to landlock ourselves on one side, we don't want to uh, deep fix ourselves on the other side. In fact, um, most um, maritime activity has always occurred close to the shore or along the shore. Mm-hmm. Now, that's true of the Mediterranean. Braudel, uh talks a lot about this. It was certainly true of, of early modern Europe, 
It was true of the Americas. It's uh, quite recently that um, uh, humans have had the capacity to go to sea and remain at sea away from the shore for long periods. And we, you know, we kind of fascinated with that. I mean, there's, there's uh, O'Brien's novels and uh, all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, deep, uh, deep water um, you know, fantasies. Uh, I, I'm a little bit skeptical of that because that does not represent uh, the, the majority of activity uh, at sea along the shore mm-hmm. for the millennia. Sure. I was just thinking of the, the next phase that you deal with. This is after the so-called prehistoric phase, and this gets us into, you know, what I would call kind of modern times, but we call it classical civilization. Then we see all of the major civilizations on Earth, they have boats of some sort. They, they, oh, can, yeah. they can go, they can't maybe not be able to go into blue water, but they can definitely uh, move, for example, across the Mediterranean, as we see in yeah. the in the Iliad and the Odyssey, where there's an entire civilization in which this is just second nature to, to build boats and to live near the coast, because that's what you did. Yes, yes, that's true. And this is where you <clears throat> begin to get trading civilizations, which, who, uh, which use the coast. Um, as um, as a great marketplace uh, for the world. I mean, in fact, uh, ports and port cities came rather late. What people would do um, is lay out their goods on the shore and hold a silent market um, where um, uh, uh, they would hope that the, the locals would come down, have a look, um, make a counteroffer, and, and then the, the trade would, um, would be consummated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so once again, the, uh, we need to think about the ways the shore has been used in, uh, other than uh, our modern perception of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems to me that after the invention of, you know, not, not exactly ocean-going boats, but at least boats that could move up and down the littoral with large cargoes, that then you see the first uh, really coastal cities. Because we know the cities yeah. of the ancient world yeah. were not coastal, um, yeah. at least the very early ones, the ones that we find, for example, in um, in Mesopotamia. They're, they're not. They're, they're riparian. That is, they're on rivers. They have to be yeah. on rivers uh, for reasons having to do with water. Uh, that is fresh water. Um, but, they're, but it's only after you see boats that you see, like, you know, even Rome. Rome is not on the ocean, but Alexandria is. No, that's you, true. You see what I mean? True. Yeah. No, no I, I, I think you've made a, an excellent point there. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. But I, I'm once again, um, uh, I'm just a little bit um, hesitant to endorse uh, too much of the um, of uh, uh, maritime history as a history of boats. Uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking of a history of boats. I just thought that at that point, you know, it really, I mean, it, it becomes kind of commonsensical that you would, once you have uh, coastal trade, yeah, th- then it makes sense to have cities on the coast. Um, yeah. and, and it also makes sense, actually, to move large populations, which is one of the things you talk about, this sort of movement to the coasts, the, or the first movement to the coasts. Yeah, but remember, um, Marshall, how late that occurred. I mean, in the Middle Ages, for example, all the major cities of Europe were upriver. Mm-hmm. And river, um, you need a really good book, uh, comparative book on, on rivers and civilizations, which we don't have. And uh, it was only later that the... Um, Europeans were confident enough to move down uh, to the coast, and um, which was considered a very dangerous area in any case, uh, open to invasion, open to you know uh, plagues and death and so on. 
and uh, put themselves squarely on the coast. That took an awful long time. In fact, this is curious. You know, the American um, Atlantic coast, the colonial coast, uh, we find some of the first coastal cities in places like Boston, mm-hmm. um, particularly less so in Philadelphia, certainly in Manhattan. Um, these are kind of bold advances um, for uh, for the Americans. Yeah, I mean, this is precisely what I mean. I mean, I know I, I was I'm a Russian historian, and I know that um, that Moscow, for example, uh, was a city on on a river, actually two rivers, and that yeah. the, that the Russians themselves uh, had a large riparian, I guess I would call it navy, and they moved a lot of uh, trade up and down these rivers, and there was a uh, there were docks there, and the Russians built boats. I mean, people think of Peter the Great as the person that founded the Russian Navy. Well, there was already a Russian Navy. It just wasn't a blue water Navy. Um, so so th- these kinds of – you think about London is a great example uh, because it is not on the coast, although it's on a coastal river. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Then later it becomes uh, kind of a, a center of, of a blue water Navy, but it wasn't originally, and for many centuries it wasn't. It was a, it was a, it was a river town. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, you, see that. Yeah, you should you should start sitting down and writing that. <laughs> oh, Can you imagine? <laughs> oh my oh, goodness! God. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's yeah, it, that that is quite a project. Rivers, yeah. Well, you know, all cities were on them. That's basically the story. Is that all cities were on them? Um, it's an interesting thing. So, uh, you know, one of the parts of the book that I really liked was that, uh, the, the, and this gets us to modern times, really, and after uh, the. Um, after the Europeans start to, uh, well, in what we now call the age of uh, discovery, do we still call it that? I don't know. But, well, we can still call it that. Okay. Uh, well, the Europeans go from coast to coast, and they do something rather odd. Well, I don't know if it was odd, but they start to plant colonies. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Could you talk a little bit about that process? Well, yeah, once again, um, the first impulse of uh, Europeans, and I, uh, the Spanish are sort of... Um, one off in this respect, but the northern Western European countries, uh, when they came to the New World, were very, very hesitant in planting themselves too firmly on the land, um, um, in part because of hearing uh, disturbing the Native American populations, but also because uh, just their unfamiliarity with the New World. So for a long time, um, their uh, their so-called uh, ports look more like uh, camps, and uh, the, certainly the fishing and and, and fur uh, trapping trades uh, were extremely nomadic. So the, there was no great urge to uh, settle the land initially, uh, but rather to make contact with the Native Americans who could supply mm-hmm. uh, the um, uh, the riches uh, for. For trade. So again, uh, the coast has this particular um, uh, uh, strange role in the settlement of America. Yes, it is the place that uh, uh, first contacts were made, but it was a very long time before the um, <clears throat> Europeans were, um, shall we say, comfortable with the coast mm-hmm. uh, and uh, were willing to invest in the, uh, in the interiors. So mm-hmm. that's that's another peculiarity that I've been exploring here. Yeah, well, I mean, what, what you say makes sense. I mean, again, I'm I'm in Western Massachusetts, and you know, the the, the first English or Europeans uh, uh, came and settled in the early part of the 17th century. By mid-century, it's only 50 years later 
they were out here and we're interior. We're really interior. Yeah, you are interior. Yeah, we're really interior. They headed towards what is really New York and, and they settled out here and they, they basically had a hard time. I can tell you that, but they left yeah. the coast as quickly as they could uh, well, for whatever reason. I, first of all, I don't think that's true because of the, the majority of wealth that was initially extracted by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts was <clears throat> from the sea and from the, the trapping trades so that um, um, uh, they quickly found they weren't very good farmers. Um, they weren't uh, in a particularly arable area. So the uh, without the fish, um, uh, as Admiral Morrison pointed out, uh, without God's gift to the fish, there would have been no Massachusetts. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is true, uh, interestingly, in, in a lot of different places, certainly in the Maritimes in Canada, um, all the way down to <clears throat> Virginia, where, of course, a different kind of economy emerges. But again, there, um, that's dependent on the sea as well. There, there would have been no um, plantation society mm-hmm. had had not uh, they had the connections with the sea mm-hmm. um, and bringing in the slaves and exporting the, mm-hmm. the tobacco. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think your case is strongest precisely in this period and precisely in the settlement pattern of early North America, where, where virtually yeah. all the major cities are on coasts. It's strikingly yeah. different than Europe, where all, most of the major cities are, in fact, not on coasts and far from coasts. Uh, whereas here, you know, we, for a long time, you know, as you point out, the United States was the coast. That yeah, was, exactly. that was it. Exactly. It wasn't much else. Yeah. Well, we're returning. You know, the irony is, as I point out in my book, that we are, have once again become a coastal yeah. society. Yeah. Everybody wants to uh, be on the coast now. Uh, we talk about the coasts as if they are sort of uh, almost territories, uh, sovereign territories in and of themselves, mm-hmm. west coast, east coast. The Gulf Coast, um, it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, cycle back to this mode of coastal existence. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and, and something else that happens at this point is the, um, uh, I, I, this may be the wrong term, and, and I, you don't use it, but the, the sort of industrial exploitation of the sea. This is the 19th century yeah. I'm talking about. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yes. I mean, that, that, uh, that occurred rather late, actually, uh, partly for technological reasons, but the... Uh, uh, ironically, the, the what you call the industrial exploitation of the sea with um, <clears throat> power uh, steam-driven trawlers and all of that thing at the end of the 19th century then um, severed the sea from the land in its traditional farmer-fisher nexus. So uh, what happened was in the 20th century, Americans continued to be... A, um, you know, industrial fishers, but they cease to be a, um, a really a seafaring uh, society. You know, Melville, in some ways, Melville's great Moby Dick is at the peak of that engagement with the sea, but it's also the death knell of it as the whaling industry collapsed and the other stuff was industrialized. Yeah, I mean, that is very interesting because when you go uh, sort of north of Boston, let's put it that way, and, and I just say that because I have, um, you know from reading things like Moby Dick and movies and such that it, it was uh, it was built on a large fishing and whaling industry and it's entirely gone. It, yes. it, there's just nothing left of it, uh, except for a couple of statues. <laughs> well, yeah, it's lost. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, well, a- we're watching in Maine now the um, uh, very, very tenuous situation, even of a lobster uh, fishery, which has been uh, thriving of late because uh, <clears throat> with the disappearance of the cod, uh-huh. uh, uh, lobster larvae have survived in huge numbers, and the, and the, and the, uh, the numbers caught has been at uh, all-time record levels, but uh, who knows? Uh, warmer water may drive them into the uh, waiting hands of the Canadian fishing industry. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question, and I don't know the answer to it, because in New England, as you know, there's something called scrod. And, yeah. and scrod is just a generic white fish. I've never told <clears throat> it's just it isn't any kind of fish. It's just a generic white fish, and it's typical. But I do wonder kind of when people started to eat, that is sort of Westerners, Put it that way. Started to think of uh, sea fi- ocean fish as something oh. that you could just eat. You know, it's like this is a regular part of your diet. You know, fish on Friday. I mean, where I grew up in Kansas, I mean, there was a, you know, we didn't have ocean fish. I mean, we had catfish or something like that, dirty water fish. I bet you weren't a Catholic either. No, I wasn't a Catholic either. No, I was not a Catholic. Um, no. Well, but, the, the the eating of fish goes back to the Middle Ages. It was in, it was sort of a religious injunction. Um, so there's a long history behind that, but <clears throat> Americans, partly because they were Protestants, um, um, were not particularly, um, how would one say, a, a fish-eating um, culture until yeah. uh, quite recently. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I just am interested in the question of when, like, you know, it become like we're going to go to the market, and we're going to get, uh, you know, we're going to get fish, and we're going to eat fish tonight, and it's just like. Yeah. I, I don't know when exactly that started. So another, another well, thing you talk about is um, so you, you in our own lifetimes. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say that's true. Especially yeah. if you think about—I don't know if you've ever read about this—like you, you order Chilean sea bass or something, yeah. and if it wasn't farmed, then if you trace like how it gets to you, it's oh. just remarkable how it gets to you. <laughs> you know, it involves yeah. aircraft. It's all kinds of things. How it gets to your plate. They're at uh, legal seafood, which is probably illegal, but never mind that. Um, and it also turns out that a lot of the fish you eat in fish restaurants isn't what it claims it is. Exactly. I, I wasn't surprised by that, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, even on Gotts Island, which has access to the sea and has had uh, wonderful, until recently, mussel beds, nobody on that island um, ever picked a mussel until probably the 1970s. When really? A good friend of ours, um, who is um, uh, a medievalist uh, from Princeton, came up. He looked around and said, "What? What the hell is going on here?" Uh, he harvested the mussels. Uh, they feasted on it uh, like kings for a month or so when they rented our house, and uh, and then people began to take notice. But no, they, they, this was it was scorned. In fact, um, uh, mussels, mollusks, and uh, uh, have generally been scorned even by um, uh, coastal peoples uh, mm, for cultural reasons, sometimes for political reasons. Huh, that's actually. interesting. I remember when I was in graduate school in, uh, in, we, in San Francisco in the Bay Area, and we used to go out to Point Reyes National Seashore, and there oh. you could use such enormous mussel beds. I mean, just huge mussel beds. And I, I couldn't believe it, all the mussels that um, – and, and I might have eaten some. I can't say whether I did or not. 
for legal oh, reasons. <laughs> for legal reasons, I can't cop to that. Um, but I knew what they were. So, um, and then another, in another chapter of your book, which I found really fascinating is that we exploit the sea and, and well, we, we, we have these coastal cities and we exploit the sea uh, in sort of an industrial way. And then we sort of discover the sea. We, 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 it's not, yeah. it's not just something that we just dredge fish out of or throw our waste in. It's, it's something. And we start to study it. Can you talk a little about that? Well, to me, it came as, as quite an interest, uh, quite a surprise to find how late um, serious study of the sea, which we would now call oceanography or marine science, uh, developed. And, and uh, the forerunner of that kind of intellectual interest in the sea was heavily um, literary. Uh, in other words, Jules Verne uh, was so far ahead of the curve in imagining the sea into being um, in comparison to the feeble efforts by scientists and their, uh, you know, sovereign indifference to the sea, um, that uh, this alerted me to this, um, the, way I, I, the way I describe it is the discovery of the sea, you know, the, the age of discovery is um, uh, the seas are discovered as something to get across uh, to find uh, lucrative uh, trade and, and riches beyond the next shore. But um, uh, the, the sea itself was largely ignored, um, partly out of fear, partly out of religious injunction, uh, until uh, the 19th century. And then finally, get, science gets, uh, gets interested. And, but again, it's provoked so often by, um, by uh, literature. Uh, the imagination precedes the science. In, in, in these cases, mm-hmm. which I think we're finding more and more is the case um, of, um, of how science proceeds, first with imagining a world and then uh, exploring it in depth. Well, I don't know anything about the history of marine biology, but I, I suspect it's a pretty new discipline. It is very new. Yeah. Uh, I, it's I, yeah, I, we know almost nothing about the uh, great biomass of the sea. Yeah, I, th- I, think, that's, uh, I think that's probably right. Um, I, th- I think that's probably right. So everybody out there listening, you can become an oceanographer and actually discover yeah. something new. Definitely. Yeah. No question about it. You're going to need a lot of grant money, <laughs> but you can probably discover something new. Um, and then I think, you know, the, the, and I remember, of course, you know, the, there were certain scientists who did a great job of actually uh, um, popularizing the, the, this notion that you could know something about. See, Jacques Cousteau is the obvious person to mention here. And yeah. when I was a kid, you know, I watched these things and it was truly amazing and, 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 and it uh, sort of opened my eyes to this world below our world. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and then there's also, of course, the notion that the, 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 the coast itself is a separate ecosystem. It's not the same yeah. as the deep water ocean. Um, yeah. It's a different See, beast. That's where I end up. This is where Rachel Carson is absolutely essential. She didn't go for the, the big grant, shall we say. Yeah, right. In fact, she spent most of her time writing um, pamphlets for the um, uh, for the U.S. government before she launched and, and wrote these wonderful books. Which, yeah. Again, we're not we're not written on grants, and they weren't big yeah. science. Uh, right. Her science was not big science, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but it was the kind of science that that uh, beachcombers and uh, uh, ladies with time on their hands down on the beach with their children had been pursuing since the early 19th century, mm-hmm. uh, you know, looking, looking into the tide pools, trying to understand the life that went on there. So she's, she's in a great amateur tradition 
uh, ramped up um, now to a a science of, of great credibility. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'll be teaching Silent Spring later this year, so I'll be happy. Oh, you will? Know. Yes, okay. I will, absolutely. Um, so, yes, she's appreciated in this corner. Uh, so, and then the last chapter of the book, um, the substantive chapter, is the most disturbing chapter, and that is the chapter about what's happening now, uh, coastal dreams and nightmares. Um, and you have this, uh, and I don't remember the statistics, so please, please tell us that in the past 30 or 40 years, I don't remember, a lot of people in the United States have moved to the coasts, or maybe worldwide. Can you yeah. tell us that? Yes, yes, yes. It's uh, uh, 15% of the American landmass, the coasts is now home to 53% of the population. So uh-huh. it's a massive overpopulation. Of course, it's even worse in the coastal cities where, uh, as we saw during Sandy, you know, people have, uh, have put themselves uh, in a position to be at, uh, at risk. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm a, uh, along with Oren J. Pilkey and many others, am a very, very harsh critic of... Um, uh, of uh, coastal policy as mm-hmm. it's been developed, and um, I think it's proved in time and time again. Now <laughs> you see the uh, you see the follies of uh, of Governor Christie and and the way he has uh, used the the Sandy crisis for his own personal um, gain, rather than to look uh, this thing square in the face and say, "Look, there's only one viable way out of this, and that's relocation." Mm-hmm. Retreat and relocation. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it's like telling the American Marines, you know, that they should pull back from Pork Chop Hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just doesn't go down. There's this strange relationship with the sea that Americans have. They're, they're, most of them wouldn't know um, one end of a paddle or work from the other, but they are convinced that they are have to be the masters of the sea. That's mm-hmm. uh, and in fact, we do have the world's largest um, uh, navy at this point—a navy that um, uh, it's hard to tell what the purpose of it is, except to keep the trade routes open, and that's that's a good, good enough one, I suppose. But um, you know, the, the the distance between the um, the politics of the sea and the reality of uh, of the sea is a huge one. Mm-hmm. Well, most of that navy is scattered around the world. I mean, it's not. It know, is. It, yeah. It's yeah. it's a wonderful. I can remember yeah. even when I lived in San Francisco or Berkeley that uh, when um, part of it would come into the uh, bay, I was really happy because I could see it. You know, you see an aircraft carrier, like, oh, there's our navy, and it goes to the Oakland shipyards. But usually, you don't yeah. see it at all. It's like not there. Well, you usually don't see your army. No, you don't. You never yeah. see your army. <laughs> that you can't even hope to see. Yeah, you can't even hope to see. But uh, it, the the movement of people to the coast is it's a uh, it's it's increased, hasn't it? It's accelerated over time. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. No, it's accelerating every day. Uh-huh. And it's, what's what's interesting about this is happening all around the world. Uh, European coasts are chock-a-block now with condominiums, mm-hmm. uh, even in Africa, which has been a, the great, you know, dark continent, interior continent, is, is now moving moving toward the shores. So, and this, this requires a cultural explanation. One of the things that I hope uh, to engage people in, in this book is their own um, um, fondness for the shore, their own desire for the shore, and um, and also they're saying also uh, paired with as you say uh, desire and nightmare. The shore is a, a, a beloved and a much desired place, but it is also a place of of nightmarish uh, experience. And uh, uh, 
that needs to be that needs to be explained. I mean, you, it's not by accident that Jaws shows up, you know, <laughs> uh, in your state, actually. Yeah, all right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but uh, I mean, yeah. for example, the the uh, the mythology of the shark, which is uh, <clears throat> most sharks are are very passive and and don't attack. But uh, why is it that we we've chosen them as the as a sort of icon of uh, of the ferocious uh, ferocious nature? Not yeah. not entirely clear. Yeah. The the interesting thing is just to sit and think. You can be you don't even have to sit on the shore to contemplate this, but there's a feeling, there's a subjectivity um, that um, one encounters uh, at the shore, which is different from any other place, any other place. And uh, uh, that is one of my quests. I'm still working on it to try to understand this particular fascination and repulsion because it's really an ambivalent feeling in the end Mm -hmm. about water. Yeah. I know that one of the peculiar things for me as a Midwesterner, when I first went to a coastal city and I first moved to San Francisco, actually I moved to, to Berkeley, um, mm-hmm. is that uh, you actually never see the ocean. <laughs> you know, you're you're right yeah. there next to it, but you don't ever see it. It's like between yeah. you don't you just don't see it, and you just don't see it. And then I moved to Boston. I lived there for a dozen years. In Boston, you really never see the ocean. Like you really have to you have to work to get out there to see it. And, yes, exactly. and I didn't work very hard. These are, are uh, a little bit uh, different now with the redevelopment of the Embarcadero out here to try to bring people down to the edge of the sea or to the bay. And the new uh, Exploratorium is a wonderful um, launching <clears throat> or a prospect for uh, re, uh, reintegrating land and sea mm-hmm. with all kinds of exhibits and uh, child-friendly uh, uh, explorations. So, so we're getting back. We're getting back to the sea. My my great fear is though that the the developers are going to get there first. Well, they've always gotten there first, and uh, uh, what we need to do is keep them at bay long enough that we can actually establish a workable relationship, yeah. a sustainable relationship between populations and and the sea. Right. I mean, I, you know, it's. Why do you think people want to move toward the coast? Why, why, do, why, this, why do people want to come move to – I mean, I understand why young people want to, come, want to move to a place like San Francisco or Boston, you know, exciting and stuff like that. But um, why this drive to – is it just an accident that these places are there and they want to end up? Or No, no. I think, I think the sea, uh, <clears throat> seaports, sea uh, shores evoke uh, the, a frontier uh, along – well – I mean, I think Americans long for the frontier. They long for a place from which they can project themselves mentally, if not physically, uh, into or beyond to the horizon. And there's no place that the horizon is, is more uh, available, unobstructed, than, uh, than the seashore. So uh, if you read the literature, if you read uh, some good, good travel writers, and you read um, people like Melville, he says we're water gazers, mm-hmm. and um, by that he means that we are engaged in some kind of mental and spiritual, uh, emotional pursuit uh, at the shore that can't be replicated anyplace else, or is difficult to replicate. And the shore has been, by the way, until quite recently, a democratic place. That is, you know, it was not um, it was not initialized initially colonized. 
uh, chock-a-block. It was, there were large open spaces that people could come uh, down to the shore, set up a tent. Uh, uh, it was a common land. I mean, if, if Americans, um, they don't have much sense of the commons anymore. It's all private property. But the, the lure of, of a place, a democratic place, where, which we can share with our neighbors, um, is uh, as a as a is a lure in and of itself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. One of the things you say in your book, and I'm very interested in topography myself, sort of urban topography, is that, um, and this you can see in San Francisco and in Boston, that mm-hmm. the uh, the docks mm-hmm. are gone, or if they're preserved, they're there for tourists because the real yeah. docks are someplace else where there are container oh. ships. Oh, on gone. Yeah. gone. <laughs> I don't well, know if you've uh, ever been to one of those places where they keep the container ships, but they're incredible. Well, I'm looking out <laughs> my window right now. This will evoke envy and hatred. Uh, and I'm looking over toward Oakland, and there I see the crane. Yeah. Uh, and then I can look over uh, through the Golden Gate to, to past Alcatraz. Right. And see an occasional, an occasional liner will come in. But the, the vast majority of the traffic is now with the container ships, and uh, that is, those are the sailor towns. Well, right. they're not sailor towns, because uh, those those sailors never get off the ships. They right. turn around yeah. in a matter of hours. Uh, there's no uh, no docking. There's only a kind of a pause. And, um, yeah. and you, can't, you, can't, you can't go down there. There's not like an ecosystem of people down there. You can't go down there and wander around. No. There's a fence. No. <laughs> They don't, no, they don't no, let you no, wander around talk, there. No, you'll be, you'll be, you'll be arrested. Yeah. I mean, this is, no, it's all under, um, you know, uh, the Patriot Act. Yeah. Um, uh, has made of the the dock areas, not every shore, but many, many of the most attractive um, shore areas are now off limits. Um, at Gotts Island, we cannot leave a bag of groceries on the dock unattended, yeah. because, you know, they'll swoop down and say, what's that? What are you doing? What are you doing? Um, you know, are you trying to blow this place up? I mean, it's that level of, of stupid yeah. paranoia um, that is uh, making these places mm. uh, uninhabitable. I just find, you know, one of the th- one of the things you mentioned is this, the sort of, the, I don't know how to put it, but the, the great well of stories, which was, the harbor town with docks. And when you think of San Francisco, it's still in my mind, San Francisco is, it's a sailor's town. And Manhattan is this place where all these people came and they were all came on in ships and they disembarked, you know, in Manhattan and they sort of came in in their droves and they did all kinds of wacky things that you couldn't even believe. And all that's gone. I mean, it's completely gone. It's all gone. Yeah. Uh, Phil Lopate has a very, uh, interesting um, uh, well it's a study of uh, the water it's called the waterfront and he he observes exactly that and uh, he, you know it's a kind of elegy in some ways but uh, of course uh, you might have wanted to go down and stare at these sailors and their malls and so on but you wouldn't want to live the life that they lived I mean uh, the sailor's life was at the bottom of the proletariat. No, I'm, I'm not saying that it was a that it was a particularly uh, attractive life, but as a kind yeah. of cultural zone that existed for a long time 
It's now, and this is true of the Thames as well, uh, and, and it's true of Amsterdam, that these places are all gone now. They've moved the, you know, the container ships have their own places and they go to those places and then they, you know, do the container thing and then they leave. And you're right, the, 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 the six, eight people who run the ship <laughs> never <Yeah>. get off. <laughs> Yeah. Well, this is why I say right uh, right off the bat in the book, I say the coasts are our most uh, altered environment. Uh, I can't think of another place, unless it's a nuclear waste dump or something like that, uh, where uh, a vast part of uh, of America has been changed so radically in such a short time. Right. And that and it's worth thinking about and alerting people to as they as they come down to look at the shore and uh, wonder what once existed there. Yeah. uh, It's funny because I lived in Seattle in the 1980s and um, I often tell people that I lived in Seattle when I used to tell people that I lived in Seattle, which is a harbor town. I lived in Seattle when it was Portland. And and what what they understood by that was, well, Portland's really down and out. Now I can't even say that. <laughs> you know, yeah. Portland, Portland is a different thing now. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. when I lived in yeah. Seattle, it was really poor. I mean, it was poor. Boeing was laying people off. You know, it's like going through this transition. I rented a house with a friend of mine for I think I think we paid three or four hundred dollars for three months. Oh my goodness! Yeah, just unimaginable today, and it was kind of gritty. You know, it's just unimaginable. But now even Portland is, you know, something, something different. you've had a good life. Well, you know, I've moved around a lot. I've lived everywhere. I really have lived <laughs> everywhere. I've seen it all. Um, and there are nice folks all over the place. I'll tell you that. So one thing I want to ask you is there's really – so Ameri- Ameri- I, I wanted to ask you one last thing, and that is Americans yeah. are moving to the coasts. Yeah. And I, I guess given our current principles and given the way we run things, the way we make decisions – there's no way to stop them. Is there? Uh, no, no. It's a, it's a, it's a free choice, but uh, we can constrain uh, the way they they use uh, the coasts uh, through. And California has been a leader in environmental protection of its coasts. Uh, I think very admirable. Maine and Massachusetts have done done well, but I I think the the crucial thing is education to understand the coast as a as a natural and human phenomena vital to our um, uh, the health of our species as well as many others um, and then then maybe people will uh, get on board in, in uh, you know limiting some of the worst excesses of coastal uh, uh, walling uh, uh, these terrible uh, uh, so-called Sand dumps, you know, where mm-hmm. the first thing is done is, uh, you know, beach washes out, and they come in and and, uh, and replace it with with no, not even with sand. I mean, this is it's gotten so out of hand. It's big business run run rampant. Another thing we could do uh, is uh, constrain the Army Corps of Engineers, which I think is is uh, uh, close to being like the national. Uh, intelligence agency, a kind of rogue <laughs> agency that does whatever it wants without uh, really much appreciation for the democratic um, uh, democratic uh, spirit. There are lots and lots of things. I'd, I'd, I'd like to restore the coast to a much more democratic uh, condition, a much more ecologically uh, friendly condition, but I'd like to restore it. I'd like to think of it as home. Get, mm-hmm. get people started to think about the coast 
as home, the shore as home, the original home of mankind. And maybe, just maybe, like they treat old houses and, you know, old neighborhoods, uh, there'll be a respect that will be restored, which will have salutary uh, uh salutary effects. That's what I'm hoping. Well, if the climatologists are right, that respect will be restored with absolutely <laughs> catastrophic results. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know... Yeah. Uh, you know, but, uh, but coast uh, shores do heal themselves. Um, and um, I'm not quite so pessimistic as many are on this sea rise and climate change thing. I, I think there's a lot... Uh, uh, you know, this isn't the first time that um, seas have risen and uh, storms have, uh, have have blown and catastrophes have occurred uh, on the on the shore. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny because we have—I say we—I'm not really a Midwesterner anymore, but I lived there a lot, and I can tell you that people in the Midwest have very great respect for rivers. Because every time the, the, the scientists say it's a thousand-year flood and it can't happen, another one happens. And the, the you know, and then the, the Mississippi overflows at banks, or you know, even you know, it, it, these things can like change their course in your lifetime. Yeah. So you know, this, yeah. we understand this is serious stuff, and uh, yeah. you know, they move towns sometimes. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. Yeah. oh, they have. <laughs> yeah, it's like well, very, you know, very if, serious. If we had had, uh, well, Melville is not really uh, a man of the shore. He has some some things to say about. But if we had Mark Twain of the shore, uh, I think uh, we'd be in a very different position today. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. You know, you kind of have the the two great American people, the the, the contestants for the great American novel being Moby Dick and Huck Finn, and one's on the the ocean and one's on the river. Um, But, you know, I used to live, I lived in Iowa for a while. I lived in Iowa for seven years, and I can tell you that the the Mississippi is, that Mississippi culture is alive and well. You know, oh, yeah. It's different there than it is other places. I went right up and down it, and it's uh, it's not there like it was in Twain, but it's there. You know, it's a it's a vibrant thing, the Mississippi, yeah. and uh, yeah, and it it can't be dominated, and people understand that. Even the Army Corps of Engineers understand that that there's just yeah. nothing nothing you can do about the Mississippi. It's too big. Well, the ships are still moving, and you have uh, somebody like John McPhee yeah. wrote about um, one of the barges. Very interesting book. Yeah. His, his books are always interesting. Yeah, so I got to get to work on that history of rivers. I... <laughs> get going, get going. <laughs> that would take me for well, one of my hope. Great what, Connecticut, right next right. door. I do have the Connecticut. You're absolutely right. The beautiful Connecticut, which is beautiful, I have to say, I really like it. it is. Um, it is. It's, it's gorgeous. So um, anyway, John, we've taken up a lot of your time. This has been really fun. Uh, I want to ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? Well. Uh, you caught me at a, not at a slack moment, in fact, a kind of frenetic moment trying to uh, inventory all the things I would like to do. Um, but I think what I'm, I'm most interested in right now uh, is finding something that leads on from the shore, uh, perhaps to the idea of a uh, question of boundaries, the history of, of boundaries, mm-hmm. how, how we set boundaries, how we set edges, and so on. But I, I'm um, I'm open to suggestions. <laughs> How about a history of rivers? <laughs> rivers? Ah, yeah. Oh boy, oh boy. You know, I don't think I've got the. Uh, I've never lived on a river. I've uh, fished small streams, but not big rivers. I just don't think I have a feeling yeah. for it. Yeah, right. Well, somebody out there will do it, and it'll be a great book because rivers oh, are yeah. super, super important. Everybody knows that. So, anyway. 
let me first say uh, we've been talking with John Gillis about his book, The Human Shore, Seacoast in History. And let me say thank you, John, for being on the show. Thank you. Absolutely. And finally, let me say that I am Marshall Poe, and I am the host of New Books in History and the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And I want to wish everyone who listens to this podcast and the other podcasts on the network a good week. 